Well, as always, we're very glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, glad that you've chosen to worship here at Prairie View. We've spent the past four weeks in the Gospel of Luke journeying with Jesus. And if you remember, this story is written primarily for Theophilus. We haven't talked about Theophilus in a while, but Theophilus was a man looking for certainty in everything he's been taught about Jesus. And so far, Luke has shown him several very important things about who Jesus really is. He's shown Theophilus Jesus' identity as God's son. He's shown him Jesus' power displayed through miracles, incredible events. He's shown him Jesus' challenging teaching, like in the Sermon on the Mount. He's shown him Jesus' compassion for the broken and the helpless and the outcast. Now you read the story, and Theophilus is probably thinking, you know, it's a nice little story. But what Theophilus may not truly know yet is that the story is actually far from over. And today is a point where things really begin to change in the Gospel of Luke. These chapters that we're going to look at this morning are very much a turning point in the story. And really they set the stage for the rest of the story that Luke has to tell. I mean, in chapters 9 through 12, this is an unexpected turn. Jesus' ministry starts to take on a very different tone than what we've read so far. The story becomes a little bit darker. The story becomes a little more ominous in chapters 9 through 12. Because in these chapters, Jesus begins talking about his death. He specifically mentions cross. He hints at a coming betrayal. In these chapters, it becomes very clear that Jesus is starting to look ahead. And he's starting to look ahead to something extremely big. And in preparation for that, he begins giving his disciples a crash course in what life will be like after he's gone. And even though you and I live in a very different time and a very different place than those disciples in the Gospel of Luke, we still would do very well to listen to the lessons that Jesus gives them. So open up to Luke chapter 9, verse 18. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 740. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you before you leave today. But let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we're thankful for the privilege that we have of gathering together this morning. We're grateful for the exciting news from the missions team uh, of the trip to Pine Haven this summer, of the Gap food packing project. Uh, we're just very grateful that we can be part of a church uh, where we can influence people in a positive way for your glory and for your kingdom, not just in Fishers, not just in central Indiana, but around the country and even around the world. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue to read the Gospel of Luke, as we continue to have Sunday morning services, as we continue to pray, as we continue to do the things that churches do, um, I pray that you would just help us to have a much bigger impact than even any of us can wrap our minds around. But I also pray that it wouldn't be for our glory, it wouldn't be just so we can make some kind of reputation for ourselves, but rather it would be for your glory and for your honor and that people might know you better, not know us better. God, we love you, we praise you, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's start reading in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, he does that a lot, doesn't he? As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. 
And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. The disciples have come a long way in their understanding of Jesus. In chapters 1 through 8, up to this point of the story, the disciples really haven't said much of anything at all. I mean, for the most part, they've just been spectators along with everyone else. They've been sitting back and watching Jesus do all the heavy lifting, watching Jesus do all the speaking. They've kind of been off to the side. And one of the few times that they did speak in chapters 1 through 8, they kind of came across as a little bit clueless. About halfway through chapter 8, they were stuck in a boat in the middle of a storm, fearing for their lives. Now, a lot of these men are experienced fishermen. They don't get scared of storms easily when they're in boats, and yet they are fearing for their lives. So they cry out to Jesus. Jesus comes out. He rebukes the wind, rebukes the sea. Everything is calm all before their very eyes. An incredible thing takes place right in front of them. But when that happens, the best thing they could come up with, the best response they had, is who then is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. That's the best they could come up with. Who then is this? That's not exactly a bold declaration of Jesus' identity. That's not exactly a courageous claim of who Jesus is. It's kind of weak. But then things change in chapter 9. The disciples get it right. Mainly Peter, speaking on behalf of the group. Jesus asks what the rumors are of who he is, and then he asks them directly, who do they say that he is? And Peter steps up and proclaims that Jesus isn't just some resurrected John the Baptist, as great as John was. He's not one of the prophets of old come back from the dead, as great as they were. He's something greater. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, just like he said he was back in that synagogue in Nazareth. Seems like a breakthrough, doesn't it? It seems like kind of a high point. Some wonderful things have happened. Some amazing events have occurred. The disciples seem to finally be getting it. Peter makes a bold declaration of Jesus' identity. It seems like things are kind of on a high. There's a lot of momentum building for Jesus and his followers. But then you get to verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So you have this breakthrough. You have this high point where Peter boldly proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. This wonderful high. All this momentum is building. But then 
just like that? When everything seems to be going so well, when everything seems to be clicking, Jesus starts saying some things that he hasn't said before. And the things that he begins saying aren't exactly pleasant. He explicitly predicts his death. His death. These men have grown to love Jesus. They've spent every waking hour of the day, almost, with Jesus, and now he's telling them that he's going to die? I mean, sure, he predicts his resurrection too, but I mean, did they even really understand that? And as if that's not shocking enough that he predicts his death, he then invites them, a better word might be commands them, to join in death with them. He tells them to take up their crosses daily. So not only does he say that I'm going to die, he says, hey, I want you to be ready to die too. Come and die with me. Because in the big scheme of things, in eternity, being willing to take up your cross now, being willing to die now, well, believe it or not, it's the only way that you'll actually end up finding life. So, disciples, if you want to save your life now, go ahead. Leave. Don't follow anymore. Don't take up your cross. Leave it sitting on the ground. But know this, if you only focus on life now, then you'll have nothing to look forward to in eternity. Now those are harsh words. They're intimidating words. The kinds of words that Jesus hasn't really said up to this point. This is so unlike the Jesus that we have read about in chapters 1 through 8. Now maybe it's just a fluke. Maybe Jesus is just in a weird mood. You know how it is. You get in a weird mood. You say things. You do things you normally wouldn't say or do. When I get in a weird mood, I listen to Bob Dylan. I wouldn't normally listen to Bob Dylan. But maybe Jesus is just in a weird mood. Maybe it's a fluke. Maybe he's been out in the sun too long. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's stressed. He's been doing a whole lot of stuff lately. Well, apparently it's not a fluke. Look just a few verses later. In verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. It's not just a fluke, it's not just a one time thing. They didn't just happen to catch Jesus in a bad mood. He gives another prediction of his death, much like the last one. And this time around, he even includes another sobering detail. He says that he's going to be delivered over. That phrase, delivered over, well, it implies that somebody has to do the delivering. Not only is he going to die, but he's going to be betrayed. And I love what Jesus says here. That phrase, let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. It's our equivalent of saying, read my lips. I'm not joking about this. He's not just trying to scare the disciples. This isn't some parable with a deeper meaning that they have to find out the symbolic purpose behind it. This isn't just a test. 
He is looking his disciples in the eye and telling them that he is going to die. He's looking his disciples in the eye and telling them that all that stuff about taking up crosses, he really means it. And from here on out, things are very, very different with Jesus. From here on out in the Gospel of Luke, when he calls people to follow, or when they approach him asking to follow, he's brutally honest about what that looks like. He's brutally honest about rejection, loneliness, sorrow, sacrifice, surrender. From this point forward in the story, Jesus doesn't mince any words about the challenge of following It's not going to be a cakewalk. Not the same Jesus that we had grown used to in chapters 1 through 8, is it? Things are very different with Jesus now. Something has clearly changed. Jesus is saying and doing things he's never said and he's never done before. In chapters 9 through 12, for the first time, Jesus sends the disciples out on their own. Because apparently it's time to take off the training wheels and let them do some ministry with their own hands. In these chapters we see the transfiguration, that moment when Jesus takes Peter and James and John on top of a mountain. He's praying, his appearance is gloriously changed, he speaks with Moses, he speaks with Elijah, God's voice thunders down from heaven. Well, the last time that happened was at Jesus' baptism. That was a significant turning point in his life. It appears that this is a big turning point too. And when the disciples worry that some wannabe followers are casting out demons in Jesus' name, some followers who don't have the right certification to use Jesus' name, they haven't gone through the proper training of casting out demons, well, Jesus doesn't really seem to worry much about it. He gives them this cryptic warning that whoever is not against us is for us. Why the change? Why is Jesus speaking and acting like this? Why are things so dark all of a sudden? Well, maybe the hint is in chapter 9, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Twice. His face was set toward Jerusalem. His face was set toward Jerusalem. The time had drawn near for him to be taken up. You want to know why things all of a sudden seem more ominous and seem darker? Well, that's why. That's the change. That's what's different. Jesus knows the final journey has begun. And Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. And he knows it's time to head in that direction. And from this point forward, everything else that happens, everything else is secondary. Because his face is set toward Jerusalem. Now that being said, you still see flashes of the Jesus in chapters 1 through 8 that we all know and love. He still shows compassion, casting an unclean spirit out of a young boy who's been tormented. He still preaches challenging messages like the parable of the Good Samaritan. He still prays regularly. We'll come back to that 
in just a second. He still performs incredible, large-scale miracles like the feeding of the 5,000. But don't be mistaken. Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. He is looking ahead. He knows what he must do. And every single step he takes further on this journey is one step closer to that ultimate act of love, that ultimate act of faithfulness, that ultimate act of obedience, that ultimate act of sacrifice that Christ took on your behalf that we just celebrated at communion. That's why things are changing. That's why things are different. There is a cross in Jerusalem waiting, and it has Jesus' name on it. And before then, before that time comes, Jesus has a lot to teach his disciples and a lot to teach us. Let's turn to chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. There it is again. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So Jesus knows that his days are drawing to a close. He knows that his death is quickly approaching. There's a cross with his name on it. He only has so much time left with his disciples. And so, he starts teaching them some pretty valuable lessons. The first one is, well, he teaches them how to pray. Now, you've got to give the disciples credit at some level. They recognize that they need to learn how to pray. They approach him and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray the way John taught his disciples. Give them credit. They realize they need to pray. Can the same be said of us? Because in our day and age, sometimes it seems like we convince ourselves, like I convince myself, that I don't need to pray. That I've got it under control. That I can handle everything on my own. But do we really believe that? If we read the Gospels, we see Jesus praying regularly. We see the disciples asking him to teach them to pray. And it might sound simple, but it's true that if Jesus needed prayer, the Son of God, the one who casts out demons, the one who heals illnesses, the one who cleanses lepers, the one who helps paralyze people walk, the one who forgives sins, the one who raises people from the dead, if that guy needs prayer... It's safe to say that you and I need prayer. And that's the lesson that Jesus is teaching. We need prayer. That's one of the biggest reasons we've been having these regular prayer nights at Prairie View. It's not just so we can put something on the calendar. And even if you don't come, the idea behind those prayer nights is that maybe you'll see that reminder in the bulletin or on the website or on the Facebook page. And if nothing else, you'll be reminded of the importance of prayer. Because if Jesus needed prayer, then you better believe that I need it. Every single person in here needs it. But not only do we need to learn our need for prayer, Jesus teaches us what to pray for. 
Maybe you're at a point in your life where you're thinking, you know what? I do need to kind of beef up my prayer life. I've been neglecting my prayer life. But prayer doesn't come naturally, does it? It's not always easy. It's very much a discipline. And sometimes you sit back and you have all these good intentions of starting some kind of prayer journal or devotional or something like that. But then you get to pray and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to start. You don't know what to say and what not to say. Well, Jesus gives a pretty good place to start right here. Pray for his kingdom to come. Not my kingdom, not the American kingdom, but God's kingdom. Pray for the basics of life, those things that we think we can handle on our own, that we can acquire on our own, things like bread. Jesus says pray for those things. Depend on God even for the littlest things. Pray about forgiveness. Repent of your sins. Understand God's forgiveness that he has for you and pray that you might learn to forgive others as well. Pray that they would forgive you when you wrong them. Pray about temptations that you deal with. We all deal with those, right? Maybe pray about ways to avoid those temptations that would draw your eyes away from Christ. Or maybe pray for strength to face those temptations that can't be avoided. Jesus not only tells us of our need for prayer, he tells his disciples of what to pray for, where to get started. But then on top of that, he even tells us here who it is that we're praying to. He specifically addresses God as their father. And then he goes on and describes God as the kind of father who loves, the kind of father who listens to, the kind of father who provides for, who is so much unlike our imperfect earthly fathers. Jesus' time with his disciples is coming to a close. He's not going to be around forever. The cross is waiting for him. And so he teaches his disciples to pray. May we learn to pray as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Another valuable lesson Jesus gives his disciples. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So, the second lesson. Jesus not only teaches them how to pray, but he teaches them what they're up against. He identifies the core problem of the Pharisees as hypocrisy. He even goes so far as to tell his disciples to be ready for those times when the hypocrites will drag you before the synagogue rulers, when they will drag you before the authorities because of your faith in me. Jesus doesn't pretend like opposition isn't out there. He makes it very clear to his disciples that the Pharisees are gunning for them. And we as Jesus' followers today need to be brutally honest about the fact that we have opposition as well. There are people out there who are opposed to the cause of Christ. There are people out there who are opposed to the cause of the church. There are powers out there that we are facing down that we can't even truly understand how much they oppose the power of Christ. It doesn't do us any good to pretend that we don't have opposition. 
He warns his disciples of that opposition. And we need to be aware of the opposition we face as well. Another lesson, chapter 12, starting in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So learn to pray. Learn what you're up against. Learn to fear. Think about that. Learn to fear. Now, the irony, of course, is that Jesus teaches them not to fear those who hate them. That's typically who you fear, right? The people who want to hurt you, the people who don't like you, that's usually who you're scared of. But that's not what Jesus gets at at all. He says, fear the one who loves you. Because if you fear the God who loves you, you don't have to fear the people who don't love God. You don't have to fear that opposition that Jesus just warned them about. Because they fear God. The only one who truly has any power and any authority over them in eternity. Learn who to fear. And learn who not to fear. Another lesson, chapter 12, verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Another lesson. The disciples need to learn that even after Jesus is gone, they won't be alone. Sure, Jesus won't be around anymore. He'll still be alive, but he won't be in their physical presence. But the Holy Spirit, he'll be with them. He'll be strengthening them, encouraging them enabling them for the calling that God has given to them. That'll be especially helpful when they're dragged in front of those rulers and those authorities and people demand answers for their faith and they're scared they won't know what to say. They won't know where to start. Jesus says, trust in the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that some of the lessons that Jesus gives the disciples for after he's gone, they're not lessons on how to preach sermons. They're not lessons on how to lead worship. They're not lessons on how to run a church organization. They're lessons like prayer. They're lessons like reliance on the Holy Spirit. Maybe we should focus on those things a little bit more, admittedly, than we do. Another lesson, chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. A lesson that can't be understated is they need to learn that in spite of their need for prayer, which is great, in spite of the opposition, which is scary, they can trust God, that he knows what is best for them and that he will do what is best for them. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God will keep his promises. God will reward his followers. And while things might be difficult now, it won't be that way forever. Because it's God's good pleasure to give them the kingdom. And until that time comes, their job is to be faithful. Their job is to wait. Now, a lot to take in. Like Joshua mentioned, 
multiple chapters, all in one sitting. I meant it when I said that today's sermon would be a crash course of sorts. And that appears to be what Jesus is giving his disciples. A crash course so that they will know what life will be like after he's gone. Because life for them after Jesus' death, life for them after Jesus' resurrection is going to be very, very different than life in chapters 1 through 8. And to be honest, we're in the exact same boat as they are when you think about it. I mean, think about it. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what it would be like after he's died, after he's risen, after he's ascended, and yet before he returns. Well, if you think about it, that's where we are. We're in the exact same time frame. Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, Jesus has ascended, but Jesus hasn't returned yet. We're in the same boat. So if we're going to be his faithful followers, we need the same lessons that the disciples got. We need to be ready. Because one day, this time frame that we're in right now will end. One day, Jesus will return. In chapter 12, verses 35 through 40, there's this parable that Jesus gives his disciples about a master who goes off to a wedding feast. And he tells his servants back at home that, well, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't know if they're taking pictures after the ceremony or before the ceremony. So, you know what? Stay up. I'll get home when I get home. They say, okay. But then Jesus tells them, all right, wouldn't it be bad if the master came home from the wedding feast and the servants weren't awake? The servants had fallen asleep. The doors were locked, the windows were closed, and the master couldn't get in the house. Wouldn't that be a bad situation to be in? Would you want to be one of those servants who fell asleep on the job and left the master outside in the cold? Well, Jesus compares himself to the master. You don't know when I'm going to come back. You don't know what time that's going to be. But what do you want to be doing when the time comes? Do you want me to find you awake? Or do you want me to find you asleep at the wheel? The old question that is so cheesy, some people think, that seems outdated, some people think, that question of what do you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? There's some validity to it. What do we want to be doing? How do we want Jesus to find us? We want to be people who were living as faithful followers of him, depending upon God's grace, or do we want to be people who fell asleep at the wheel? Now, for the rest of Luke's gospel, Jesus is looking forward to Jerusalem. His face is set toward Jerusalem. He's preparing his disciples for life apart from him. And he makes it very clear that life apart from him will be life that requires prayer. Life apart from him will be life that faces opposition. Life apart from him is the kind of life where you would do well to know who to fear and know who not to fear. Life apart from him, well, you're going to need the Holy Spirit for that. Life apart from him, that will require trust that God really will reward his people. That God really is going to give his kingdom to his people 
one day. But until that day comes, until Jesus returns, it's our job to be patient. It's our job to wait. It's our job not to fall asleep. So my challenge to you this morning, as we all together as a church try and figure out what it means to be Jesus' faithful followers as we wait for him to come back, my challenge to every single one of us is that we might be awake, that he would find us awake, and that he would find us faithful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of preaching, and I pray that somehow the preaching that happened this morning would do justice to so much of your word. God, I thank you that you speak through imperfect people, that you speak through imperfect sermons, and that your word does the heavy lifting of preaching, that I don't have to do it, it's not about my delivery. It's not about my preparation even, but it's about getting people into your word and just simply letting them read. And so God, thank you for the power of your word that makes any preaching worthy of listening to. Father, I thank you for the lessons that you teach us this morning. I thank you that you came and you lived and you died and you rose from the grave and you ascended to be with God and one day you will return. Father, as we took communion this morning, I pray that we were reminded of the truth that we can never, ever, ever hear too many times, that your body was broken for us, that your blood was shed for us. Thank you for this community of believers that we have that can gather together and read your word together, that we can disciple each other, that we can teach each other, that we can pray for each other, that we can truly serve as a family for one another. Father, I pray that whenever it is that you return, none of us know when that will be, that you'll find us awake, that we will have devoted ourselves to the things that honor you, that we will have devoted ourselves to the things that serve your purposes, that we will have devoted ourselves to the things that Help other people know who you are and what you've done. Father, I pray that as we leave this place this morning, that we would look for opportunities to serve you, to serve our community, and to be ready for when you return. Give us patience, give us endurance, give us strength. And God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I really don't think you can overstate that phrase that you read in chapter 9, verses 51 through 53 of Luke. That phrase, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. At this time, when we sing our last song, I want you to think about that phrase, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Because when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, he was going to a death, he was going to a cross, he was going to make a sacrifice for you. For your sins, for your rebellion, for your flaws. And so as we sing this last song, I pray you'd be reminded of the weight of what that means. 
that the Son of God died for you. That the Son of God went to a cross for you. That he wasn't just sent to teach some cool things. He wasn't just sent to do some amazing miracles. He wasn't just sent to say some things that could maybe be some good principles to teach our kids. He was sent to die for you. And as we sing this last song, some of our elders will be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk with you about what it means that Jesus died for you if you've never believed that before. So let's stand together, we'll sing our final song, and then we'll go on about our Sunday.